My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle. Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861 to 1865. Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And this is, whoops, this is episode 25, chapter 13, Spotsylvania, North Anna, Bethesda Church, and Cold Harbor. Ayers Brigade at Spotsylvania. Fifth Corps occupies extreme right of army. Hancock's Corps storms Bloody Angle. Captures 4,000 prisoners. Night of May 13th, flanking movement to left. Severity of engagement at Spotsylvania. Fifth Corps crosses North Anna River at Jericho Ford. 155th and Ayers Brigade repulse four persistent charges of Confederates. Remarkable heroism, tenacity, endurance, and suffering of Union troops. Badly blistered feet caused by scorching roads and wading streams of water. Battle of Bethesda Church. Battle of Cold Harbor. June 2nd, 5th Corps attacked by Early's Confederates. 155th and 5th Corps take position to protect Army while crossing James River. Army of Potomac crosses to south side of James River. Casualties. May 10th, 1864. The regiment spent all day with Ayers Brigade behind breastworks which had been erected and afforded protection from enemies firing in answer to the desultory firing which was kept up by the regiments of the brigade. About four o'clock in the afternoon, Ayers Brigade was ordered to advance and drive the enemy some distance back to their works, a position of skirmishing which the brigade held for some time until relieved by other troops when it resumed its former place and position in the breastworks. May 11, 1864, was occupied by the regiment and Ayers Brigade in the breastworks with little disturbance from the enemy, enabling preparations to be made for an attack arranged for the next day, May 12th, on the enemy's works by the entire corps, supported by the Sixth Corps. The position of the entire army under Grant at this time, at Spotsylvania, was the Fifth Corps on the extreme right, near the Bow River, the Sixth Corps adjoining the Fifth on the left under General Wright. The Second Corps, under General Hancock, continued the line to the left, occupying the front of the salient of Lee's entrenchments. The Ninth Corps, under General Burnside, held the extreme left near Spotsylvania Courthouse. The Bloody Angle Although the losses of all these corps had been very heavy, their depleted ranks were promptly filled up by reinforcements from Washington, fresh divisions and brigades and regiments appearing promptly and ready for action. 
the Battle of Spotsylvania was opened promptly at daylight of the 12th. Hancock's corps stormed the angle, since famous as the Bloody Angle, because of the desperate character of the fighting and heavy losses to both armies. Hancock's troops, however, were successful, and captured 4,000 prisoners, many guns and two officers, Major General Edward Johnson and Brigadier General George E. Stewart, who were commanding the defenses of Lee's army at the time. The news of this victory spread like wildfire in the other Federal columns and lines of battle. The Fifth Corps, later in the day, had to fight hard to hold the Confederate works, which had been captured by Hancock. The enemy making repeated and desperate assaults to recover the captured works. The 155th Regiment of Ayers Brigade occupied part of the captured works. The losses on both sides were very heavy because of the closeness of the infantry and artillery firing. The troops under Warren in this vicinity were required to change position so often because of the changes in the enemy's movements as to make it very difficult in the new country to distinguish the points of the compass. From the 13th to the 18th following, the four corps of Grant's army occupying their own works and the works captured from the enemy at Spotsylvania were never out of the reach of the enemy's artillery. The Confederates would not leave their works to attempt to dislodge the Union troops where entrenched. The positions of both armies were very strong, the fortifications being practically impregnable, and Grant and Lee were undoubtedly playing a game of chess with their armies in the matter of movement of troops. During the occasional lulls of these days' battles, Brady's photographic wagon and outfit from Washington appeared in the reserve bivouac of the Fifth Corps. One day, General Warren and his entire staff, while under a desultory fire from the front, were exposed to a different fire from the rear by the snapshot of the large camera of the Army photographer, which successfully executed the general and his staff in a large picture. General Warren's staff was composed of a brilliant and capable set of young officers. Captain Robert Warren, Colonel Fred T. Locke, Assistant Adjutant General, who had served in that capacity since the organization of the Fifth Corps, attaining rank as Brevet Brigadier General for meritorious conduct at Five Forks and Appomattox. The engineers on Warren's staff, when he assumed command of the Fifth Corps, were Captain Washington A. Roebling, who subsequently earned distinction in the engineer constructing the Great Brooklyn Suspension Bridge. Captain E.B. Cope, USA, who with Captain Roebling was with Warren on Little Round Top, and Captain Payne, USA. Captain James W. Wadsworth, son of General James S. Wadsworth, killed in the wilderness, and Captain George B. Halstead, and Captain A. S. Marvin, were assistant adjutant generals and ADC on the staff. Captain William T. Gentry, USA, was commissary muster officer. Colonel H. C. Bankhead, USA, was inspector general of the Corps, and Colonel David L. Smith of Pittsburgh was the efficient Commissary General of the Fifth Corps, and an ADC on the Corps staff. Captain Thomas was the Corps Quartermaster. More Flank Movements During the night of May 13th, the Army moved to the left, marching through mud and rain and crossing the Nye River. It was so dark that the enemy could not see the movement, and the Union troops could see but a few feet ahead. Mounted men were placed at intervals along the road by General Warren's orders to prevent regiments from losing their way. General Grant had discovered from his experience in the wilderness 
that it was useless to fight Lee behind entrenchments and fortifications, for the mere positions gained, the military advantages of mere positions not justifying renewals of further assaults and loss of life. The unanimous opinion of both armies at Spotsylvania Courthouse was that either of the armies behind entrenchments was unassailable, and that a front attack by either army was a foregone failure. They had acquired the art of rapidly constructing impregnable earthworks, all approaches being covered with battus and slashed timber. The men of both of these armies had refused to be driven from their positions and died where they stood. At Spotsylvania, they had fought for twenty-four hours, with only a line of felled trees and a line of earth six feet between them, in a continuous rain, every thread of clothing drenched and soaked, water over their shoe-tops, no food but rain-soaked crackers. As showing the severity of the fighting, oak trees eighteen inches thick could be seen cut down by the constant patter of many balls. At the end of twenty-four hours fighting in Spotsylvania, when the exhausted Confederates were withdrawn, it was only to disclose the presence of another line of strong breastworks constructed by the enemy, one hundred yards in the rear of their first line. General Grant evidently believed that if one of the large corps of the Union Army was detached and exposed to a march of twenty miles in a southeasterly direction, General Lee would be tempted to leave his works and attack the exposed corps, and that while the Confederates were thus moving for the attack, he, Grant, could fall upon them with his main body and bring on a general engagement before they could again entrench. Accordingly, General Hancock's second corps moved on the night of May 20th and reached Guinea Station the next morning. General Lee declined to attack the exposed Second Corps, but on the contrary moved rapidly south of the North Anna River to Hanover Junction, where he arrived May 22nd, interposing his army between Grant and Richmond. Fording the North Anna Grant's entire army was in motion at 5 a.m., May 23rd, the Second Corps, the most eastward, moving to Chesterfield Ford on the North Anna River, the Fifth Corps to Jericho Ford, and the Ninth Corps to a crossing between the Second and Fifth Corps. The scenery, along the route of the Army's movement, was most beautiful, being an open country abounding in fine, fertile farms, and every appearance of comfort and prosperity of the inhabitants as compared with the portions of Virginia previously occupied in the campaigns of the Army of the Potomac. Ayr's 1st Brigade of Griffin's Division waited the North Anna Stream at Jericho Mills Ford, time not permitting the troops to wait for the pontoon bridges which were soon to follow. General Ayr's Brigade advanced the line further from the crossing as each brigade of the Corps following got over. A strong skirmish line from Ayr's Brigade was posted ahead, driving the Confederate outposts in advance of them. The fording of these streams by so many men, in water so cold, and often in places so deep, was attended with great difficulty to the troops, but the urgency of the race for positions left no alternative, it being generally known that Beckenridge's and A.P. Hill's Confederate forces were in position at another portion of the stream where there was a ford, in anticipation that that would be the place where the Union troops would cross instead of Jericho Mills. Whilst the Fifth Corps was crossing, Ayr's brigade was in two lines in the edge of the timber, in front of the line formed by the 155th, and other regiments of the brigade was the skirmish line of the 14th Regiment, 
United States Infantry, less than 30 feet in advance. After the divisions of the Corps had all crossed the stream and secured positions without opposition being developed, muskets were stacked and blanket rolls hung on them. Repeated Attacks by the Enemy Towards sunset, after the men had their suppers cooked and were engaged in eating, and non-combatants were peacefully bivouacked in the midst of the troops, not expecting battle, about 6 p.m., the yells of the enemy were heard as they crossed the fields in front, their advance being preceded by the flight of hogs and cattle, sheep and fowl from the farms in and through the lines of the brigade pickets. The familiar rebel yell was recognized, and instantly the stacked arms were seized and the men of the 155th and all along the line dropped to their knees and were ready. The first line of skirmishers fired steadily during the first and second attacks of the enemy, the 155th, and Ayer's entire brigade, then advanced over the line of pickets and repulsed three more persistent charges of the Confederates. The last severe charge occurring after dark, although during the entire night frequent renewals and attempts were made at very short intervals to drive Ayer's men from their position, which was being strengthened every moment by the erection of earthworks. During the night, frequently, both pickets and skirmishers were driven in, and the men behind the works engaged in strengthening the same, dropped their tools and opened fire, checking the enemy's further advance. The attack was a total surprise. General Ayers, who led the advance and who rallied the first troops that crossed around the Corps flag, was most active in directing the firing during the engagement. At the time of the first attacks and charges by the enemy, there being no entrenchments, the loading and firing of the troops of Ayers' brigade was all done while kneeling. After the repulse of the enemy, the engineer's tools, the spade, shovel, axe, and pick were brought up and put to work, and, as stated, were frequently exchanged during the night for the musket to repel the fierce assaults upon the pickets and skirmishers. Among the killed in the first attack by the enemy in this action were Privates William S. Hindman of Company E and Theodore Baldwin of Company F, two of the youngest and most popular members of the regiment, and no deaths produced greater sorrow to their comrades. On the morning of the 25th of May, it was discovered that the enemy had withdrawn from the battlefield of North Anna, leaving a large number of killed and wounded on the field. The 155th Regiment alone, and going over the field in front of their position, gathered up a wagon load of Confederate arms, with the bayonets still fixed, which had been left by the enemy on the field. Generals Meade and Warren both, in orders, publicly congratulated General Griffin, the division commander, and General Ayers, commanding the advance brigade, for the gallant style in which their commands repulsed the repeated attacks of the enemy. Tuesday evening, May 26, 1864, the Fifth Corps was again on the move, Ayers' brigade leading the advance along the line of the Virginia Central Railroad. Details of the troops were made. Details of troops were made up to tear up and destroy the track, which occupied all the day. Ties were piled up and set on fire, and the rails were laid across the piles of burning ties and heated. Squads of men then seized the rails at each end and bent them all sorts of shapes. The railroad bridges and much stock were also destroyed, but little time was given the troops for rest, and the 155th Regiment, under command of Lieutenant Colonel Ewing, 
was among the busiest troops engaged this day. On Wednesday morning, May 27, 1864, whilst operating along the railroad mentioned and advancing towards Hanover Junction and the Pamunkey River, Company E of the 155th Regiment, with three companies of the 91st Pennsylvania and the 140th and the 146th New York, were detailed as advanced skirmishers. They were deployed in an open field, really serving as vedette posts, being protected only by hastily gathered railroad ties, behind which the skirmishers lay and hid their bodies from the unusually accurate range of the enemy sharpshooters, many of whom were posted on trees in the adjoining woods. The many balls that raised the dust along this exposed skirmish line were very numerous, and continued until night set in, when Company E was relieved from the skirmish line. Coolness of General Griffin Under Fire An episode which elicited the admiration of the men on the skirmish line was the calmness and coolness displayed by General Griffin, the division commander, while in a very dangerous position. As the general visited the vicinity of the exposed skirmish line of Company E, commanded by Captain George M. Longlin, he approached the advanced position through heavily wooded timber where his division was concealed. Walking along the public road towards the front and making no effort to conceal his presence from the enemy, the general, apparently unconscious of the danger, exposed himself to plain view of the enemy as he approached the outposts of the skirmish line in order to take observations of the enemy's positions. He was warned by Corporal John M. Lancaster of Company E, who was on duty closest to General Griffin's position, to get under cover, as the enemy's sharpshooters, concealed in the trees and other places, had full range of the position. The general, without the slightest exhibition of concern, continued his advance in the middle of the road, when the mini-balls, raising the dust close around him, caused him to heed the advice of the corporal. As General Griffin turned to leave the road for the cover of the woods, a mini-ball struck the heel of his boot, on which the general turned towards the enemy, and said loud enough for the men on his own skirmish line to hear, quote, Johnny, your aim was bad. You shot a little too low this time, unquote, and then disappeared in the woods. And less than ten minutes after, General Griffin dispatched the Maryland Brigade, three regiments to take position in the field occupied by the 155th skirmishers to drive the enemy's pickets and skirmishers back from the position they occupied. This the Maryland Brigade did in gallant style, but not without heavy loss. The ground gained on the railroad and property destroyed and track torn up by Grant's army this day, while keeping the troops unusually busy, was quite satisfactory, and General Grant, evidently, not desiring to have a battle on this railroad thus destroyed, issued orders to move on to the Pamunkey River. This led to the evacuation of the Union breastworks just completed for defensive purposes, as was done at Spotsylvania. Changes in Campaign Methods And here, it is proper to recognize a condition that began in front of Spotsylvania Courthouse and continued until the end of the war. In all engagements previous to Spotsylvania, the regiments were maintained as units, each regiment usually having its front covered by a detail of skirmishers from its own ranks, and somewhat under the observations of the regimental commanders. But in the strenuous fighting in the wilderness, and the first two days at Spotsylvania, 
the limit of human endurance was reached. Commanders of brigades, regiments, and companies could not personally supervise every detail of the moving, fighting, and care of their commands. Every hour of the 24 hours of the day, no less could the rank and file stand up without sleep, food, or rest. They had to be relieved from the firing line, for sustenance, washing of face and hands, even though with a small amount of water poured from a comrade's canteen, issue and cooking of rations, replenishing of ammunition, and cleaning of guns. During the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, the entire line of the Fifth Corps was held in close contact with the enemy's line at from 200 to 400 yards distant, with the intention of assaulting, if the enemy weakened his line in front by withdrawing troops to reinforce other parts of the line and resisting the attacks of the Sixth, Second, and Ninth Corps. The fighting on the skirmish line was constant and severe, with many attacks on either side to test the resistance of the line in their front. To furnish this firing line, details were made from each regiment for 24 hours' duty. Sometimes the right or the left wing, five companies, with a complement of one or two field and company officers, sometimes one or two or three companies, sometimes heavy details from all of the companies, the remainder of the command occupying the entrenchments, ready to support the firing line in either defense or attack. And so it came, that in the fierce continuous fighting at Spotsylvania, the distinguished services of any regiment or brigade or its commander disappears and is merged in that of the corps. But in this development of the subordinate officers and their detachments came so many instances of personal gallantry that the pen fails to record, and a record of the same would be wearisome to the reader. It produced in the 155th Regiment a long list of magnificent, unsurpassed outpost officers, captains, lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, and privates equal to any emergency. No night was too dark, no thicket too dense, no swamp too treacherous to establish a line of active skirmishers. In open ground and daylight, a squad of four men, each with a couple of rails on his shoulder and musket in hand, made a rush to the ground selected in advance. On arriving on the ground selected, the four of each squad then combined their rails and dropping behind them, one firing and three digging. By this means, they entrenched in a few minutes the places thus selected with marvelous swiftness and skill in close contact with the enemy. To the position occupied by the enemy skirmishers suit better, they were by the Union skirmishers boldly charged upon, their line penetrated, and taken in reverse, prisoners sent to the rear, and the pits made to face the other way. Reprisals were frequent on both sides, the fighting fierce and deadly, sharpshooting constant and skillful, the heroism, tenacity, endurance, and suffering cannot be told. A man or regiment in a historical battle for an hour or fraction thereof can say he was in such a battle. What can be said for the detachments engaged in continuous, hourly battle for the many weary miles from Spotsylvania to the James River? The operations in advancing on Cold Harbor partook very much of the foregoing character. On May the 27th and the 28th, the regiment marched twenty miles and halted at night very weary and fatigued, suffering much from heat and thirst. On the 28th of May, after reaching Hanoverton, the regiment crossed the 
Tolopotami River, and again began putting up as usual works for defensive position. Early in the morning, May 29th, the left of the Ninth Corps connected with the right of the Fifth Corps, the Sixth Corps on the right of the Ninth Corps, and the Second Corps on the extreme right, and the whole line thrown forward in front of Hawes' store. May 30th, the Fifth Corps continued the advance of Griffin's division towards Shady Grove Church, capturing two lines of earthworks. At the close of the day, the Fifth and Ninth Corps had been placed south of the Tullipotami Creek line held by General Lee, and on the right flank of Lee with the Second Corps passing the enemy's line along Tullipotami Creek from Atlee Station southeastwardly to vicinity of Cold Harbor. As fast as ground was gained from the enemy, the new position was entrenched, and usually a counterattack had to be repulsed. Occasionally, several attacks had to be repulsed in quick succession. More flanking movements? Much suffering. Is where we will pick up next week, my friends. Let's talk about... Well, I've got a lot to talk about this time, actually. Uh, first up is breastworks and entrenchments. Those words are certainly being used again, and a lot, aren't they? And I'm not sure there's too much about the battles themselves that I'm going to talk about that haven't been covered in greater detail by historians and other military minds. However, a few things jumped out to me, but before I talk about that, on my website, rebellionstories.com, I'm going to have a animated featured battle map from the American Battlefield Trust. It's about a little under 20 minutes long. But, you know, let me get this out of the way. I'm not sponsored by the American Battlefield Trust in any way, shape, or form. I have briefly held communications with Gary Edelman to talk to him about my trip going to Gettysburg as a march. And so I want to talk to you guys. You might think that the battles of the American Civil War are protected by the federal government or by individual states, or but they're not. Like Some portions of them are, but they're not protected. Not a lot of them. So the Battlefield Trust makes really great content. And so I'm going to ask you if you got some money to spare. And I know money has been tight and all. So if you don't have money to spend, don't spend it. But if you do, Battlefields all over the country are at risk of destruction from cooker-cutty houses being built over them, which is the worst version of all for something to get destroyed. So if you have a few bucks, throw it to them, okay? Because they do real, amazing, and wonderful work for the people of our country to preserve these historic sites. And you know what? They get it done, too. All right, moving on from that. I want to talk about Brady's photographic wagon and the words used in regards to that, because I think the authors are poking fun, but I'm actually not sure. Right? So while General Warren and his staff are exposed, I'm guessing to random bullets, right? That's desultory fire and cannonballs. They're getting a picture taken, right? And this is, and I quote, which successfully executed the general and his staff in a large picture. I sometimes can't tell if these dudes are making a joke or if it's just the language from the time that the book was written. 
But either way, it made me laugh, and I wanted to talk about it again. All right, <laughs> moving on from that. I'm not going to talk about the movements of the armies, because I'm not a general, except for in Warhammer, and that hardly applies to the Americans of War. So I'm really just going to talk about some interesting things that I found in this battle that the authors wrote about. After the regiment at North Anna was having dinner and was attacked by the rebels, and the animals themselves were preceding the attack as the rebels were coming at them, and you could see cows and pigs and chickens all running pell-mell to where the Union soldiers were, what a wild scene that must have been. Especially since the rebels seemed to have fought really hard for that location, but I hope a whole bunch of them got eaten, you know? Soldiers didn't have the best of diets a lot of the time. So, that's my headcanon. That's what happened. Alright, and the authors talk about the spade and shovel being engineer's tools. But any modern infantryman knows uh, that every single person gets to carry their own shovel now. Which is, in the Marine Corps we called them an E-tool, and there were small shovels that fit on your back. So, I found that you know, just a little bit interesting as the time period has changed that infantrymen weren't seen as diggers yet. But maybe they were, I'm not sure. But in this so far, um, they haven't been. But it seems like they get to be pretty soon, right? This is one of the campaigns that like really sticks on them where they start uh, digging in every chance that they get. Uh, oh, and somebody asked... I got an email that asked when I was in the Marines. I did. It was ten, about 10 years ago now. All right. Oh, I want to talk about the vedette posts. And this is what got me really fired up. I was really excited for this. And the skirmish fire and how they were fighting. And, of course, General Griffin being a total boss and telling the rebels out loud that their aim sucks. That's pretty hilarious. But on top of that, the way they explained how and how it went on through the end of the war was digging and advancing, digging and advancing. And to use that to capture enemy skirmishers, to take positions when they weren't in like a general combat between, you know, mass units, man, that's modern combat. A hundred percent. They were essentially doing something that we call I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. And it just in like an older form of fashion of that. And I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. You say that to yourself when you get up to run. I'm up, the enemy sees me, and then I'm back down on the ground so you can't shoot you. But while you're doing that, somebody else is covering you with covering fire. And you just kind of like, you can do I'm up, he sees me, I'm down with individual fire teams adjoining squads, entire platoons. So when I was reading this, I was, I was kind of like got a big smile on my face. I mean, they were using wooden rails as portable cover while digging in. But if you're having men to your left and your right also do it, and then you're advancing at some other point in time, that takes a lot of skill. Amateurs aren't going to be able to pull that off. This is like these are well-oiled machines that the soldiers had become to be able to pull this off. And I became very impressed. 
because I know what it takes to, you know, to kind of pull something off like that. All right. Um, that's the last of my notes. I just want to one more thing. I want to thank you all for listening to my podcast because we have now crossed over 40 listeners per episode on average. So, you know, thank you. It really means a lot to me that you guys have chose to dedicate some of your actual real time that you don't get back listening to me. And, uh, I appreciate it. I just wanted to let you know that. Also, come check out my website at rebellionstories.com. A lot of you have been, so thank you so much for that. I'm trying to... It takes a long time, actually, to like build content for that. So, thank you very much. And I think this weekend... I think I said I was going to do it last time, but I just didn't get around to it. But I'm going to lay out all of my gear... And I live in two different places. I have a house and I'm not living at my house right now while I'm working. So my gear is at the house and not where I'm living currently. So I'm going to lay out all my gear that I'm taking with me on the trip, including some of my hardtack and some other stuff that I'm going to be going with me. And I'm going to post it all for you guys all to see on my website. Thinking like Tuesday. All right. Just so you can see I'm not pulling your leg and I'm actually going on this trip. So as far as the schedule goes, I'm still going. I might not make the Gettysburg anniversary because of work, but I'm also thinking like not getting run over by some tourists on the road might be a good thing. Although it'll still, it might be like a few days afterwards. Well, all right, my friends, that's it. I need to go work out and clean my Springfield rifle. And, uh, man, it's, it's actually really fun being able to say that. Enjoy your fantastic weekend. Take care of yourselves. And be happy, man. Like, just be happy. You're still alive, right? And <laughs> you just made it through a pandemic to listen to my podcast. <laughs> Alright. I'll see you guys next week, okay? Have a great one. Bye-bye. Amongst the good and true When a robe of white is given for That faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit In thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the good and true when a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue, he cried, Give me water and just one little crumb, and my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good, and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven. Again. My faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit In thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the good and true When a robe of white is given for 
that faded gold of blue. 